I want you to take your Bible and find Psalm 42. Psalm 42, we're in this series entitled Caring for Your Soul. And last week, we covered what could be called the disparity gospel. When God seems silent, when the Bible looks like a slab of granite, when prayer seems like you're talking to yourself and you do not experience the joy of the Lord, the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ can become the disparity gospel. And at some point, you will run into this in your life. It's also been called the dark night of the soul. Now, last week, we considered the problem and some solutions just from verse 1 of this psalm. Today, we'll dig into the first six verses of it as we consider this dark night of the soul. Let's read Psalm 42, beginning in verse 1. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving and a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. O my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of the Jordan and from the peaks of Hermon and from Mount Mazar. Look above the chapter heading in your Bible. It should say a maskil, M-A-S-K-I-L, a maskil of the sons of Korah. The meaning of the word masculine is not certain. It may mean this psalm is didactic. In other words, it's a psalm meant to teach. But it's written by the sons of Korah, which is very significant. You find Korah in Numbers chapter 16. When Moses led the Hebrews out of Egypt, they were in the wilderness, and a Levitical priest named Korah led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. He recruited two other priests named Dathan and Abiram and what the Bible calls 250 men of renown. And with a critical judgmental spirit, they said to Moses, You have gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst, so why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Then Korah led the entire congregation of the Hebrews against Moses and Aaron, and they gathered at the tabernacle's entrance. God told Moses, stand back. I'm going to consume them instantly, the whole lot of them. Moses interceded for them in prayer, so instead of destroying them all, in a terrifying display of his wrath, the earth opened up and swallowed Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, the 250 men, and all that belonged to them. Numbers 26 says, the sons of Korah, however, did not die. They were witnesses to the terrifying wrath of God, but they did not die. So because of their forefathers' sin, they knew the wrath of God is upon a rebel, but they also knew God was great in his mercy. The fact he spared them was evidence. And by the time you get to King David, the sons of Korah were, were, were restored to their Levitical service. Many were excellent musicians. They wrote 11 of the Psalms. And in this one, they describe what it's like when you hit a spiritual wall. Now, when that happens to us, it's important that we recognize 
how to recognize it, first of all, and then learn how to persist through it. And then like the sons of Korah, remember that God's mercy will break through. Now, some would say that in our walk with Christ that our emotions are unimportant. Um, you know, we don't live by feelings. We live by faith. All that matters is the fact of the historical substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross and that he rose from the dead. And the hope I have is God's promise that I'm his whether I feel anything or not. But folks, our emotions are involved in walking with God. A consistently emotionless, dry faith is not normal. The Christian life is not intended to be dry, drudge, dry drudgery punctuated by occasional periods of joy. So here's how the sons of Korah address this problem. First, let's just look at the symptoms. And the first one is inexplicable dryness. Verse 1 is the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. This is a deer that is very thirsty. And unlike our summer, there's been no rain. So familiar creeks and streams are now dry, their beds are cracked, and the deer can't find anything to drink. So the psalmist compares the deer's unslaked thirst to times when we say, I'm thirsty for God, but I can't seem to experience him. Now, there are reasons for that that are easily discernible. An unrepentant sin, no devotional life, no prayer life. Those would create an obvious disconnect. But what do you do when there's no apparent reason? There was a man years ago named Walter Trobish, T-R-O-B-I-S-C-H. He wrote a little pamphlet that is pure gold. It's called Spiritual Dryness. And he said, all of us know days or months when our heart does not sing for joy, let alone our flesh. And he said, in fact, any joyful feeling seems far away and all our efforts to bring about such a feeling fail. He said, Christian virtues seem dull and unattractive. Our consciences become insensitive and blunt. And we all go through these periods, but we tend to be reluctant to admit that to one another. You know, this is kind of how it goes. How are you doing? Well, you know, I'm, I'm really spiritually dry. Oh, well, you're spiritually dry. Well, ha have you confessed all known sin? Are you reading your Bible? Are you crying out to God? Have you tried fasting? Are you asking, seeking, knocking? Are you praising him? Are you claiming the promises? Are you seeking first his kingdom? And you're like, okay, I'm sorry I said anything. Those are questions we should ask ourselves, and it's good to share this problem with a brother or sister, but the bottom line is there are times of inexplicable dryness. There's also personal despair. Verse 3, he says, my tears have been my food day and night. Now, I read a lot of sources on this, and there's many different views of this. I'm going to narrow it down to two. Some say that refers to physical problems. Tears is my food day and night may have been a poetic statement, but some commentators believe that it refers to insomnia. Now, I can tell you from vast experience that insomnia will ruin you. And I've learned when I'm sleep-deprived, I mean, I make mistakes. I've learned never to reach any conclusions or make any significant decisions. And it can definitely affect you spiritually. Here's something I really want you to hear. You cannot separate the soul from the body the body houses the soul if your body is afflicted the soul can be affected 
Martin Lloyd-Jones was a brilliant preacher in the 1900s. He was a medical doctor turned preacher. And he wrote a book that you can find free online as a PDF. I highly commend it to you. It's called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cure. It's a series of sermons that he preached on the subject. And he said, you cannot isolate the spiritual from the physical, for we're body, mind, and spirit. The greatest and best Christians, when they're physically weak, are more prone to an attack of spiritual depression than at any other time. And Elijah would be the great example. After his stand for God on Mount Carmel, Jezebel threatened to kill him. He ran for his life all day, according to 1 Kings 19. And then he said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. Now, thankfully, God did not answer that prayer. Elijah fell asleep, which was exactly what he needed. Then God supernaturally fed him, and 40 days, 40 days later, he met his spiritual needs. So exhaustion, a long bout of great stress, or deep grief, or physical sickness can lead to a seeming disconnect with God. It's a terrifying feeling. And I know some of you have heard parts of the story I'm about to tell, and I apologize for that, but many of you have not heard this. I had a kidney transplant, and in the hospital afterward, I couldn't sleep. I'm getting IV steroids. I had an ileus, which meant my bowels wouldn't move just because of the anesthesia, so they had to stop the painkillers. And I was a mess. During that time, this just looked like a binder of blank pages. And I felt as if God had disappeared. I tried to pray, and all I could pray was two statements over and over again. Lord, please help me. <laughs> and Lord, if I'm not saved, would you save me? Now, I knew I was saved. But my body was so afflicted, my soul was greatly affected. And I had feelings of being forsaken by God. You may be spiritually dead just because you're tired in your work or tired of your work. There may be too much stress or strain in your life. You, you may have so many things on your plate that you have to do that are legitimate responsibilities that they just seem to grind you down to nothing and you can't seem to connect with God. Yet the truth is we need to flip that over. God may seem silent because you may need to exercise self-control. Lloyd-Jones says some people who suffer from tiredness and lethargy, quote, do not control their appetites, their lusts, their passions, and their desires. He said a healthy diet and physical activities are, quote, the rules of life and living. So neglect in those areas could lead to spiritual dryness. So it could be physical problems, but those tears could also speak to depression. When you see in the Bible that Moses, Elijah, and Jonah say, Lord, take my life, you realize depression happens. Now, there are different levels of depression. I'm not a doctor. I'm going to stay in my lane this morning. But depression is one of the most mysterious maladies that exist. People can have everything going right for them and yet go into years of depression and anxiety. I had a bout with depression and anxiety for about a year after my transplant, which is not uncommon for a renal patient. They think it's due to the massive amount of new drugs you have to take, including steroids. But regardless, I went on Zoloft for a time, and it really helped me level out. 
And then after some time, I realized it was making me too placid, so I tapered off of it, and it did exactly what it was supposed to do. It helped me through a dark period. Now, I mention that for two reasons. Number one, I want you to know that me and many other pastors have experienced this. Depression and being spiritual don't often correlate, which is interesting. You read some folks and they say, man, if, you, if you're depressed, it's because you've got some kind of sin in your life. And I think, man, are you living on the same planet that I am? Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, struggled with depression. If he struggled with it, I can and you can too. Now, there have been a few times when people come to me with this problem. And my first question is, have you been to a doctor for physical? One person found out the issue was her thyroid. And a couple of people, no one here, I wouldn't tell this, and I, I wasn't trying to, to one-up them, but I said, have you seen a doctor and had a physical? And they said, I'm not going on a drug. That's not spiritual. Well, I just pulled out my old Zoloft bottle, which I kept there in my desk drawer for a reason, and said, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with being spiritual. There's nothing wrong. Now, hang in there, put, put your seatbelts on, because I know some of you are going to disagree with this. There's nothing wrong with taking medicine to get you through a period of depression. Now, some of you would strongly disagree with that. I respect your position. I really do. I hope you can respect mine. That's a Romans 14 issue. You may have a way of getting past those times. Good. Or like many people, you're saying, this sermon doesn't connect with me because I've never experienced this. Regardless, I think we can all agree on this. Some of what we call depression or discouragement is what Randy Alcorn calls homesickness for heaven. He has an excellent book entitled Heaven. If you want to know what heaven is like, read that book. Sometimes our spiritual deadness is just a symptom that we're not made for this world. And if we don't understand that God has set eternity in our hearts, we may misread that discontent and seek to fulfill that in all the wrong ways. Once born people are made for two worlds, this earth and hell. Twice born people are made for one world and this world isn't it. Here's another symptom and that's a loss of purpose. The sons of Korah were worship leaders, and the author of this psalm was responsible at one time for leading temple music. Look at verse 4. He said, For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. 1 Chronicles 6.33 says the sons of Korah were organized by David for music. But then look at verse 6. He says, I remember you from the land of Jordan and from the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Well, that's well north of Jerusalem. We don't know why he was there, but he certainly couldn't lead in temple worship. How does that relate to us? A company may have been sold or downsized, and one day you walked in and you were considered expendable. Maybe a spouse showed up one day and said, I'm done with this marriage, and you never saw it coming. Or some of you may say, you know, your main purpose, it was a parent, and now your kids are raised and moved away, and you're not sure what your purpose is. Those kids can't even return a text. David and Joseph, I'm talking to you if you're listening. <laughs> There's more than one way to get a message across. Those are my sons if you're new to West Haven. <laughs> I recently heard an unchurched person I know say her son was in travel sports and she said he's about to graduate. She was worried. She said, we won't be going to games anymore, and I'm not sure what my purpose is going to be. 
God gives every believer a purpose. We don't exist to eke out as much pleasure as possible and then turn to dust. Jesus infuses our life with purpose. But when your circumstances change, you may feel like you've lost that purpose. And that leads to the dark night of the soul. Now, the fourth possibility here is attacks by enemies. Verse 42 and verse 43, or excuse me, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 are considered to be one continuous song. So look at verse 1 of Psalm 43. He says, Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation, and deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. Well, when a nation is ungodly, there are unrelenting attacks on what the Bible calls what the Bible describes as virtuous. And the Bible repeatedly decries the actions of deceitful and unjust men. It can affect us. And this wears me down. I'm sure it does you too. And it can create spiritual dryness. So what are some solutions to this? Well, the first one is to overcome spiritual inertia. Let me go back to Walter Trobish. He said, the one who takes in much must also give out much, otherwise he may lose what he has. So God puts truth into us, but that truth has to come out of us in good works. Once he does something in you, he's ready to do something through you, and that has to come out of you. Imagine a guy joins a football team. He practices diligently, he's always on time, never misses a practice, memorizes the game plan, keeps himself in great physical condition, and when it's time to play, he puts on his pads and his jersey, gets fired up, he comes flying out of the tunnel, runs through the field, runs up into the stands, sits down, puts his helmet on, and watches the game. (laughs) Stephen Olford used to say many Christians are like the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea has an inflow, but no outflow. Therefore, it becomes stagnant, and everything in it withers and dies. If we store up knowledge, but we don't share it, if we're not willing to get our hands dirty, so to speak, in ministry, to put in sweat equity, to teach but never do, to talk but never do, why would God give us more? The one who takes in much must also give out much. Number two, this is going to be hard for some of you, but it's forgiveness. There may be someone in your life, past or present, who if I mention your name, it would just, their name, it would just send a flash of emotion through you. That person wronged you in some way. They never tried to make it right. In fact, they might even deny they ever did anything wrong. And in the course of life, every person is wronged in some way. And if we let that go without forgiveness, it eats away at your soul It tears down your walk with Jesus, and it silences God's voice in our life. Unforgiveness leads to terrible life decisions and grave spiritual dysfunction. And sometimes people think, well, I'll just change my theology. Or I'll change churches, or I'll change spouses. But if you don't forgive, your spiritual life will wither. If anyone had the right to be unforgiving and vengeful, it would have been Jesus. But he asked God to forgive those who nailed him to a cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And by his death, in essence, he said, Lord, their due punishment, put it on me so they can be set free. It takes a lot of humility to forgive someone who's burned you. 
But when you get to that point, you realize in your heart of hearts that you're no different, and I'm no different, than Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Our hearts are full of rebellion against God, and like the sons of Korah, our only hope is God's mercy. And when Jesus forgives us, he always gives us a brand new start. And I've, I, I, please hear this. He does not give us a brand new start so we can try harder this time so we don't mess it up. That's putting faith in yourself, which means you're the Savior. The brand new start is to remind us that we're completely dependent upon him. Don't trust your evaluation of your motives or your assessment of your works. I went to St. Luke's Hospital near the plaza three weeks ago tomorrow morning. There was a severe thunderstorm warning when I left the parking garage to go to the doctor's building. I had an umbrella and I had my computer. So it was a good workout. I got my computer up on my wrist and I held the umbrella like this against the straight line wind coming out of the northwest. And it worked. It kept me dry except for the bottom of my legs. Well, I got under a pavilion at the entrance. <laughs> And I saw, I saw an elderly woman pull her car up at the curb. Well, she gets drenched as she pulls a walker out of the trunk, and another elderly woman was coming out of the back seat to use the walker. So like a good boy scout, I put my computer down, I grabbed my umbrella, and I have a medical device in my chest that I can't get wet, but I thought, well, my back's going to be to this straight-line rain, so this will work. So I ran out over the woman in the walker and partly the other woman, and burnishing my credentials as a good pastor... And loving my neighbor as myself, I mean, this is going to go in LinkedIn, I held the umbrella over them. <laughs> and then I suddenly noticed rain just pelting the woman with the walker, just blasting her in the face. And of course, I'm already soaked, and so is the other woman. And the other woman says, sir, look at your umbrella. The wind turned the fins of my umbrella straight up. So all three of us got soaked, and I'm standing in the middle of a National Weather Service warned storm holding, in essence, an 18-inch lightning rod. <laughs> and I had to return my last three merit badges that I never returned in the first place, and my so-called good work was an epic failure. Now, the idea was good, and, and, and now I want to be serious with you. I even hesitated telling that story. I really thought about it. Because I thought, is this a way of subtly bragging on myself? I don't think so, but I don't know. We can't trust our motives. We can't trust our evaluation of our good works because if that woman hadn't said anything, I would have thought, look what I did. What's the one thing we can trust in? It's God's mercy. So the gospel gives you a brand new start despite our wrong motives and inaccurate evaluations, the gospel gives us a brand new start to remind us our trust is in Jesus and that there is no condemnation in Jesus. Even though I deserve worse than Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, even though my eternal soul should be in hell, but I know God gives me salvation through Christ Jesus. That's the greatest forgiveness ever known. So human forgiveness is never perfect. You may need to put a distance between you and the offender, especially if they're unrepented. But if you forgive from your heart, the Lord honors that. And I want, there's this almost an entire another sermon, but I want to throw this in here. In forgiveness, you say, I'm having trouble forgiving. Don't focus on that person. Focus on Jesus. 
The more you love Jesus, the easier you'll find it to forgive. Now, here's another reason. It's reason with yourself. Lloyd-Jones notes in these psalms that the psalmist is constantly talking to himself. Verse 5, my soul, why are you downcast? He repeats that two other times. So Lloyd-Jones has, I think, great wisdom here. He said we must talk to ourselves instead of allowing ourselves to talk to us. He said most of the unhappiness in life is due to listening to self instead of talking to self. He said question self, preach to self, reason with self, remind self of who God is, what he has done, and what he's going to do. And that self who is frustrated or fearful or says God is silent and God is absent, don't listen to him. Rebuke him. Remind him of God's faithfulness, of God's word. Remind him that God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should repent. Has he said it, will he not do it? Or has he spoken it, will he not make it good? Remind your soul that the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Use God's word to reason with yourself. Fourthly, be present in corporate worship. Again, verse 4, he used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. After living and working in a world that we're not made for, Gathering weekly reminds us that Jesus is greater than anything, more amazing than anyone. He alone is sovereign over everything, and that renews our joy and thanksgiving and love. Let's talk for just a minute about singing. I encourage you to raise your hand, shout hallelujah, clap after a song. Several of you have told me you feel like it, but you don't want to be the only one. Who cares? Express your love for him. And you may come in on a Sunday morning feeling terrible. And the last thing in the world you feel like doing is singing. What does it do to your discouragement? When you sit down and listen to a building full of loud and strong singing to Jesus, especially men, and I can tell you what it does. It blesses your soul. God built the need in each one of us for corporate worship, and our Western individualism will stifle our soul. If a person believes they can be a Christian without a church, here's a question. When you read the Bible, how do you know your beliefs are biblical? How do you know they're accurate? I mean, you can always be right in an echo chamber, but when you're in a class, your conclusions are tried and tested by other knowledgeable, mature folks. That's how, you, that's how it works. I taught uh, systematic theology here twice. And in that class, there were two or three times where people pushed back. And I had to say, you know what? I'm wrong about that. You can't go it alone. And if you try, you'll eventually deaden your soul. Now, there are other things here we don't have time to talk about, but I want you to look at verse 10. As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? When you feel that way, remember Jesus on the cross when his adversaries said the same thing to him. They said to Jesus, where is your God now? He trusts in God, let God rescue him if he delights in him. If you feel abandoned by God, remember Jesus who was abandoned, who cried out, God, why have you forsaken me? Remember that evil men killed him, men with the spirit of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. 
And he was buried, but he rose victoriously. He defeated sin and death, and he never gives up on you. And the day will come, if you're spiritually dry, that he will break through. He loves you with an everlasting love. And the question is, do you know of that love today? Now he said, man, don't talk to me about the love of God. My circumstances stink. Why would you say he loves me? And here's why. Because he died for your greatest need, and that is the forgiveness of sins. Because our soul is eternal, it will last forever. It will last forever in a place called heaven or a place called hell. And you need the forgiveness of sins to be with Jesus forever. This may surprise you. And I, I don't mean this in a, in, a, in a way of rebuking anyone, but it's just something that we need to keep in mind. We tend to forget what I'm going to say. God doesn't exist for us. We exist for God. Our soul was made to worship Jesus. And if this morning you've never surrendered your life to him, but you sense him calling you to himself, you can't even put your finger on it, but you know that without him you're doomed. And yet you, you want him. You, you, you don't know, again, how to put it in words. Here's what I want you to do. Put your faith and trust for the forgiveness of sins in him alone. Not in holding an umbrella over someone. In him alone. And then enter into repentance, which just simply means turning away from sin and turning toward him. The Christian life is a life of repentance. It's not a, repentance isn't a one-time thing where you say, I, I want to be saved, so I repent of my sins. It's a whole lifestyle of sin. So you just enter into this belief in Jesus and a desire to turn away from your sin and trust in him as your Lord and Savior. Now, if that's you today... Would you complete that card in front of you and put it in the basket? Would you talk to me or Nathan or someone here? Because we want to help you take next steps in the Christian life. Thank you so much for listening this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.